Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Syrian Tales, Episode 3, The Refugee Prince Last time, we explored the twin cities of Ebla and Mari, that flourished between 2400 BCE and 1800 BCE. Both of those cities were prosperous and vibrant in their day, before succumbing to the invasions of external powers. This episode is a capstone to that process but it is told through the eyes of one individual, a man from a city that we are well familiar with today, a man who was born in the blood of royalty, but was forced out of his own kingdom by the predations of an outside power. This is the story of Idri Mi, the refugee prince of Aleppo. If you go to the Syro-Palestinian wing of the British Museum, you will be greeted by the sight of a large white statue. It is of a man with a long beard and large staring eyes. He sits on a throne, wearing a robe and a tight-fitting skullcap. His right arm crosses his chest, with his hand resting over his heart. His left hand rests in his lap, where it may have once held a staff or scepter of some kind. This statue was found in the ancient ruins of a town called Alalak, which will feature prominently in this tale. The statue was found in pieces in the ruins of Alalak's central temple. It had been buried in this sacred space as a mark of respect for the god and for the man whom it depicts. That man was a prince, a one-time ruler of the city of Alalak, whose biographical tale was carved onto the statue itself. The statue that we look at is covered from bottom to top in cuneiform inscriptions, which are the wedge-shaped letters of the ancient Akkadian language, the dominant political and diplomatic language of the day. The subject of this statue, and the cuneiform biography carved on it, was a prince. His name was Idri Mi. Idri Mi, the refugee prince, is the subject of a truly fascinating little story. His life was recorded on this statue, where it has been recovered, reconstructed, and translated. In this story, some amazing events and peoples come to light. Idri Mi was born around 1520 BCE, approximately. His biography picks up somewhere around 1500. But honestly, don't take any of the dates here as gospel. The whole chronology of this period and its exact dates is a mess. Idri Mi was not born in Alalak, where his statue was found, and where he ruled. Instead, he was born in a city further east, a town that is incredibly old, a town that we are, sadly, all too familiar with today. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? 
about Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, Idri Me, the Prince of Alalak, was actually born and raised in the city of Aleppo. Aleppo goes back millennia. It is one of the oldest communities in Syria. Today, we know it best as the battleground, the epicenter of the Syrian conflict. Studying Aleppo in the modern news is a surefire way to give yourself an incredible headache. We begin the day with what is looking more and more like the final fall of Aleppo. The regime of Bashar al-Assad, Russia, Iran, and their affiliated militia are the ones responsible for what the UN called a complete meltdown of humanity. When I first wrote the script for this episode, a ceasefire in Aleppo between the government and rebel forces had just been declared. Refugees were being evacuated, and it seemed like the city might be quietening down. Sadly, that's not the case. In just the last few days, warfare has sprung up again, this time between Kurdish forces and the Turkish. So Aleppo is long-suffering. Prince Idrimi was witness to some of this firsthand. When Idrimi was born around 1520 BCE, the city of Aleppo was called Halab. It was in the same place as the modern city, just the name was different. Ancient Halab centred on a large central hilltop, or tell, which formed the main citadel and town. Today, that citadel is dominated by a massive medieval construction. So the ancient ruins are long buried, and not much is known archaeologically about Aleppo in antiquity. Still, Idrimi gives us some information. In 1520 BCE, Aleppo sat between a variety of foreign powers. To the south, there was Egypt, which dominated the Nile Valley and parts of Canaan. To the north, there were the Hittites, an aggressive but rising power. To the east, there was the Mitanni, foreign invaders who had carved out a niche in what is now northern Iraq. And to the southeast, there was the great kingdom of Babylon. We met Babylon in part two of Syrian Tales, when the famous king Hammurabi sacked and destroyed the city of Mari. Each of these foreign powers extended their influence into Syria at one time or another. During happier days, Aleppo and Syrian communities had traded and communicated with these powers in relatively prosperous terms. Those were happier days. By the time Idrimi was born, Aleppo's heyday had passed. Foreign powers were now beginning to exert their influence aggressively. The city's wealth and its territory had diminished as great powers subjected Syria to brutal raids and attacks. One of these, a campaign by the king of the Hittites, had burned the city of Aleppo down while that king was on his way to attack Babylon. Although that destruction was nearly a century in the past when Idrimi was born, Aleppo had never quite recovered its old standing. When our story begins, Aleppo was ruled by the king Ilim Elima. He was Idrimi's father, and he was an influential man. He had married a lady from the city of Imar, south of Aleppo. The two cities were thus joined by the kinship of their ruling families. Which was very fortunate, for in Idrimi's hour of need, this family connection would save his life. You see, as our story begins, King Ilim Elima's security and rule was coming to its end. 
Elim Elima's problems originated outside of his kingdom. Aleppo was increasingly under threat from the great power of Mitanni, into whose influence much of Syria had fallen. The warlords of Mitanni, Indo-European migrators, were an aggressive warrior elite. They were eager for expansion and territory. In the aftermath of the Hittites' assault on Babylon and central Syria, the Mitanni had moved into the power gap and they were increasing their influence rapidly. The kings of Mitanni seem to have adopted a bit of a CIA-style approach to Syrian politics. With their wealth and power, they encouraged political coups in cities that they wanted to control. Which is how, around 1500 BCE, Elim Elima suddenly found himself fighting for his life. The king of Mitanni, perhaps named Barat Tarna, orchestrated a rebellion against Elim Elima. Why? We do not know. Perhaps the Mitanni and Aleppo had had a falling out. A trade deal might have gone sour, or a diplomatic situation ended in acrimony. Or perhaps Elim Elima was not as compliant as the Mitanni wanted. As they sought to expand their influence into Syria, Aleppo was a vital strategic point. If the rulers of Aleppo would not cooperate with Mitanni ambitions, well, the Mitanni would find someone who would. So it was that Elim Elima was overthrown and killed. In the chaos which overtook Aleppo that day, the king's son Idrimi found himself fleeing for his life. Idrimi and his family members took to the road. They fled away from Aleppo, away from the Mitanni, anywhere where they could find some refuge and succour from those who sought to control them or kill them. It is here that Idrimi introduces his tale. For this, I think I'll invite Idrimi to tell us himself. Idrimi? I am Idrimi, the son of Ilim Alima, servant of the war goddess Shaushka, my lady. Here is my story. In Aleppo, my father's home, an outrage had occurred, being the overthrow of my father by rebellion. From this, my family fled. We established ourselves in the town of Amar, for the lords of Amar are descended from my mother's sisters. My brothers, who were older than I, lived there as well. The city of Amar was southeast of Aleppo. It was located near the river Euphrates, and was an important vassal of the overall kingdom that Aleppo ruled. When Idrimi and his family went south to Imar, they found an important Bronze Age town, well fortified and secure. Idrimi and his family came to Imar as refugees. Idrimi came here because the rulers of Imar were his cousins via his mother. In times of crisis, who better to turn to than your family, right? Well, Idrimi wasn't quite satisfied with this. I'm sure he was grateful for their help, but something else was troubling him. Quote, We established ourselves in the town of Amar, but none among us considered things as I did, and it occurred to me that he who lives properly in the house of his father, he is a prince indeed. However, he who, like me, lives not in his own house but in exile, among the people of Amar, he is a slave only. A refugee is a slave, he says. It's hard not to sympathize with Idrimi here. Idrimi did not want to leave his home, did not want to be out in the cold. 
To him, it was a moment of shame that he should be forced to flee his own home to abandon his own kingdom in favour of refugee status in a nearby community. Idrimi could not stand the situation. He seems to have been a man of action. So, before too long, he made the decision to leave Ima, to leave refuge, and instead to take some kind of action for controlling his own destiny. Quote, I took my horse, my chariot, and my groom, and went to the desert, and went toward the land of Canaan. In Canaan, people from many lands were staying, including people from Aleppo. When they saw me, and knew that I was the son of their lord, they assembled around me. Thus I was made a noble, and received the authority of command. Idrimi left Imar, left refuge, and he went out into the desert. His gratitude for his family's hospitality could not outweigh the nagging feeling. If he lived his life in exile, was he any better than a slave? If he did not control his own destiny, what value was his life as a man? Idrimi thought it was better to be a king in exile than a refugee in the lands of his kin. Was he proud? Possibly. But he was determined, and determination can never be ignored. Idrimi could not stomach the insult that the Matani had done him, and the dishonour of his family's ruin. He needed a way to avenge it, and to reclaim his birthright if he could. Idrimi went to Canaan, far to the south of Aleppo, and there he settled. Here, in the dominions of the nascent Egyptian empire, he was theoretically safe from the Mitanni, and could plot his next move. Apparently, others from Aleppo had thought so too, for Idrimi found allies among the Canaanites, some of them from his hometown. Coming amongst his people, he was recognised as their leader, and given the authority of command. Now, his vengeance could begin. Quote, I stayed in this land for seven years, among the Canaanite people called Habiru. I let birds fly and sacrificed lambs. In the seventh year, the great god Teshup turned to me. Thereupon, I built ships. Idrimi wastes no time on his statue in putting his plan into action. For seven years, Idrimi was in his exile in Canaan, among the people called Habiru. More on them in a moment. Having taken command of his fellow refugees and some of the locals, Idrimi settled for a while into a familiar rhythm of life. He governed his people and saw to their needs. For a while, life may have attained some semblance of normalcy. First, he took on the responsibilities of a priest. Far from the temples of Aleppo, he led his people in their worship and took the omens according to traditions. This was just and proper for a ruler to do. In the absence of a proper priest or temple, it was the responsibility of Idrimi to connect his people with their gods. In the process, perhaps Idrimi would find the guidance he needed. Eventually, a moment of revelation came upon him, and Idrimi saw an omen which he perceived to be a message from the great god Teshub. This omen encouraged Idrimi, and he now thought that maybe the time was right for his revenge to begin. Now, we're missing a couple of steps in the process, but it seems like Idrimi and his followers, whom I call the Idrimites, made their way towards the coast of the Mediterranean. Historians speculate that they may have come west, near to the cities of Byblos or Ugarit. Here, 
the Idramites, including refugees from Aleppo, and the mysterious people called Habiru, assembled a small fleet of seagoing ships. Idrimi's goal was, ultimately, to capture Aleppo and reclaim his ancestral home. But to do that meant going up against the Mitanni, and Idrimi did not yet have the resources to do that. So, his first goal was to take control of a different city, a city which would give him the means to recover his power and eventually achieve his birthright. Idrimi and his warriors boarded their ships and sailed against the city of Alalak. Quote, I let the soldiers board the ships. By sea, I approached the country of Alalak and reached the mainland in front of Mount Hazi. I climbed that mountain. When my country heard of me, cattle and sheep were brought to me. In only one day, as if one man, the countries that were loyal to my father came to me again. My brothers heard and came to me. My brothers fraternized with me. I protected my brothers. After seven years in exile, Idrimi's ascendancy was beginning. We now come to the city of Alalak, where Idrimi's statue slash autobiography were found, the city which he eventually ruled. Alalak is an important town in central Syria. It dominates the upper Orontes River and the roads down to the Mediterranean Sea. Alalak held sway over trade routes which came from Aleppo and headed westward towards the coast. Also, goods from Cyprus and Crete came east to Alalak. If Idrimi could claim this valuable trade city, he would be in good straits. So Idrimi and his followers sailed along the Mediterranean coast to the slopes of Mount Hazi, which today we know as Mount Cassius. There he set up his camp. He and his warriors hunkered down and sent word to the people of Alalak and the surrounding villages. Idrimi, the son of Ilim Elima of Aleppo, had returned. What followed was a classic hero's welcome. The leaders of Alalak, long-time vassals of Aleppo's rulers, recognized the legitimacy of this prince, and they greeted him warmly. Pretty soon, Idrimi was installed as the ruler of Alalak. Idrimi became king of Alalak, and at this point the story takes a surprising turn. From here, the tale does not record any attempt to reconquer Aleppo. For some reason, Idrimi decided that the timing was not right, and that he should remain in Alalak while he could. Perhaps the monumental task of governing one city made him realize just how much kingship involved. Or perhaps, assessing the situation after his return, he decided that the kingdom of Matani was simply too powerful to challenge with the resources he had. Either way, when Idrimi took over Alalak, he settled down here for good. Soon, he had to take a thought for his legitimacy. If he wanted to remain ruler of Alalak, there was still someone he had to deal with. Idrimi, king of Alalak, now sent a message to the king of Matani. In it, he laid out the new situation, that he was back, that he was the former prince of Aleppo, and that the king of Matani should take care before deciding on any aggressive action. He did this by appealing to the king of Matani's honour and some good old-fashioned divine fear. For seven long years, Barat Tarna, king of the Mitanni, had been my enemy. But in the seventh year, I sent a man to see King Barat Tarna and reported on the efforts of my fathers. 
I told Barat Tarna that my fathers had fraternized with the Matani, and that our mutual ancestors had sworn a strong oath. The powerful king of Mitanni heard of the efforts of our ancestors and the mutual oath, and he was afraid of the contents of the oath. Because of the wording of the oath, and because of our efforts, he sent a greeting gift. Well, all's well that ends well, right? Either out of superstition at breaking an oath, unwillingness to attack Alalak so far west, or simply disinterest in the whole situation, King Bharat Tana agreed to Idrimi's overtures. He sent a greeting gift to Idrimi, effectively recognizing him as the ruler of Alalak and affirming that Matani would not interfere or challenge in Idrimi's rule. Gift-giving was a primary method of interaction and diplomacy among the rulers of the ancient Near East. It's a type of relationship that I will get into in a later episode of the History of Egypt. But suffice to say that in ancient diplomacy, giving a gift was more than a polite nicety. It was an acknowledgement of one's legitimacy and status. The greater the gift given, the more the giver acknowledged the recipient's prestige. For this gift, Idrimi was grateful, and he celebrated appropriately. Quote, I donated sacrifices liberally. I supplied the refugee house again. In my distinguished conviction, in my loyalty, I swore to him in a friendly manner. So I was king for Alalak. Kings to my right and my left came to me, and I was made equal to them. Idrimi got what he wanted. The Matani recognized his rule of Alalak and acknowledged it with gifts. Idrimi was grateful, and in the middle of that little excerpt, he inserted a small statement that has big implications. Idrimi notes that he swore to him, which is the king of Matani, in a friendly manner. In other words, Idrimi made either a formal declaration of friendship or even subservience to the far-off king of Matani. Why? Well, that was the name of the game. If he wanted to hold Alalak, he could probably only do so at Matani's approval. If he was not willing to play ball, he would have to fight. And I don't think that Idrimi and Alalak were ready for that just yet. After making his declaration of friendship, Idrimi was part of the overall Matani sphere of influence. Rulers far and wide sent delegations or messengers to Alalak, and Idrimi received them gratefully. He had reclaimed his birth status in part, and while he did not yet rule Aleppo, he was once again among the brotherhood of Syrian kings. Sure, he was a vassal of the Matani, but baby steps now, right? Idrimi now began his rule in earnest, first up, organizing the kingdom and taking care of those all-important priorities. Quote, I enlarged the temple for a sacrifice, and so a lost house was returned to him. I swore the earlier oath in my status as a loyal retainer. And then, because the city wall of my forefathers lay tumbled to the ground, I raised it up from the ground, and I set bricks up high for battle. One of Idrimi's first priorities was to fortify his kingdom and make it ready for any kind of military disturbance. I would be very surprised if Idrimi had not learned some very important lessons from what happened to his father. So, the new king of Alalak began to fortify and prepare for war. 
Idrimi ruled Alalak for 30 years, and in that time he made more than one incursion against some of his enemies. He expanded his dominion, and even went to war against a people that had once caused his home community a lot of trouble in the past. About a hundred years before Idrimi was born, the king of the Hittites attacked Aleppo and burned it to the ground. This king had been passing through Syria on his way to attack the kingdom of Babylon, but while he was on campaign, he gave his troops some much-needed experience by raiding and sacking the kingdom of Aleppo and destroying it. Aleppo had recovered, but it seems that memories were long. Now that he had the power and the resources, Idrimi went to war against the Hittites, which is known as the kingdom of Hatti. Quote, then I took troops and went up to the land of Hatti, capturing seven cities. These were the towns of Pashahe, Damarutla, Hulahan, Zila, Ie, Uluzila, and Zaruna. I captured cities and I destroyed others. The land of Hatti did not gather and come against me. I did what I wished. I carried off captives and took all types of goods and possessions. I distributed the plunder to my auxiliaries, my brothers, and my allies. I was generous, but for myself, I took these cities' weapons. If that seems like a barrage of place names, don't worry, it is. The point is more that Idrimi provides a list of the lands or towns he attacked. This was important for posterity. Standard practice for the ancient world, every king did it. The kingdom of Hatti, of the Hittites, had been mighty once upon a time, but then it had retracted. Perhaps the king of Hatti's attempt to sack Babylon had caused the empire to overextend, or perhaps the Hittites simply did not wish to rule so large a territory. Either way, by the time of Idrimi, Hatti had withdrawn again into Anatolia, or Turkey. This was a period of inwardness that would be repeated a couple of times over the Hittites' long history. The Hittites will become mighty indeed in the History of Egypt podcast, but at the time of Idrimi they were quiet, and the king of Alalak seems to have attacked them with impunity. Perhaps, like Pharaoh Tutmose III, he achieved an element of surprise over his enemies, and was able to swoop over them before proper resistance could be mustered. If so, Idrimi did well, for he took away plunder and wealth and brought them back to Alalak. There, like a good ruler, he distributed the spoils to his retainers and supporters. But not the weapons, those he would keep for himself. Idrimi was sensible. Weapons in the hands of your allies are a good thing, but allies can become enemies overnight. If nothing else, the lessons of his father Ilim Elima were testament to the lesson. Speak softly, keep your friends close, but when ruling, always be the best armed. Paranoia or caution aside, Idrimi seems to have been quite benevolent as a ruler. Quote, I returned to the land of Mukish and entered Alalak, my city. With the captives and livestock, with all the goods and possessions that I brought down from the land of Hatti, I had a house built. I made my throne like the thrones of kings. I made my brothers like the brothers of kings, my sons like their sons, and my companions like their companions. I settled the inhabitants of my land in comfortable dwellings. I housed even those who lacked a dwelling, 
I stabilized my land and made my cities like our previous ones. And just as our fathers established the meanings of signs of the gods of Alalak, I was regularly performing the prayers and sacrifices of our fathers, the ones they had caused to be performed regularly. I performed these rites, and I entrusted them to Imnirari, my son. So Idrimi ruled well and ruled long. He built new communities, made sure that farmlands were well used, and took care of his loyal retainers and his companions. He was a sensible king. He ruled with efficacy. He ruled for thirty years and took great care to make sure his kingdom was well managed. He did all the things that a king was supposed to do. He attacked his enemies, worshipped his gods, and took care of his people. It is here that Idrimi ends the formal narrative of his life. He does not recount any reconquest of Aleppo, and it seems as though he remained king of Alalak until his death. Which might seem like an anticlimactic end, but in many ways it is an ideal one. Idrimi was responsible for the deaths of many in his wars, but ultimately his homeland was safe while he was in charge. Although he ruled a different community, he did not seek any vengeance against the Mitanni. In so doing, he spared the people of Aleppo another horrible war. I'm not saying this was his intention, but it's something we have to remember. Although Idrimi's story ends somewhat anticlimactically, it ends in the way that was most beneficial to his people. And that is worth noting. Idrimi's statue now finishes his story, and he turns to the securement of his legacy. This legacy, this appeal to posterity, was recorded on that monumental statue which now sits in the British Museum, from which we get the autobiography of Idrimi. To protect the statue, Idrimi was willing to invoke any kind of protection he could. Idrimi invoked divine protections, insurance policies for posterity. In other words, he threatened the heck out of anyone who would damage his legacy. Quote, Whoever effaces this statue of mine... May the heaven god curse him, may the earth below destroy his progeny, may the gods of heaven and earth diminish his kingship. Let him be measured by a rope. Whoever changes or erases it, may the lord of heaven and earth and the great gods extirpate his progeny and seed from his land. Idrimi may not have been willing to put his people of Aleppo through another war, but he was more than willing to condemn anyone who messed with him to the fires of hell and the destruction of their progeny. In other words, Idrimi was a superstitious man. Remember, he had been a high priest of his people. He'd done this in exile, and he did this at Alalak. So Idrimi had a strong connection with the gods, and he was able to call on them to assist him in many ways. Again, Idrimi never attempted to retake the city of Aleppo, where he had been born. He refrained from this, despite outliving the king of Mitanni against whom he had sworn vengeance so many years before. Eventually, King Bharat-Tana of Mitanni died, and as far as we can tell, Idrimi outlived that king by at least a few years. So why did he not take the opportunity to reclaim Aleppo when the king of Mitanni died? Well, chances are that by then, Idrimi himself was an old man. He may have been tired, past his prime, unwilling to throw himself back into the fray of warfare once more. The moments of his glory and his youth had passed, and so 
Idrimi decided to go into his twilight years in peace. Idrimi died somewhere around 1460 BCE, give or take. Having been born a prince of Aleppo, he died a king of Alalak. He had ruled his adopted home for about 30 plus years. When Idrimi was gone, the city came into the hands of his son. It was his son who continued his legacy. When we return, Idrimi's son will carry on his father's work. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. When Edrimi died, the throne passed to his son a man named Nik Mepa. Nik Mepa came to power in interesting times. The geopolitical balance between Egypt and Mitanni had been shaken by the recent campaigns of Pharaoh Tatmos III. The Syrian lands and cities were therefore adjusting to a new balance of power. Nik Mepa, king of Alalak, is well known to historians of Mesopotamia and Syria. In his reign, you see, Nick Mepa led Alalak through perilous times. He balanced the competing powers of Mitanni and Egypt against his own people's interests. Somehow, he emerged successfully on the other side. Nick Mepa was a successful king. Idrimi, his father, would have been proud. We know an awful lot about Nick Mepa's activities, thanks to excavations at Alalak by Sir Leonard Woolley. Woolley's work in the 1930s and 1940s turned up the various layers of settlement in the city and a lot of detail about life in ancient Alalak. He also found a huge treasure trove, a trove of clay tablets inscribed with cuneiform letters, letters that constituted the government archives of the Alalak palace. From these tablets, we learn so much about Nick Maypar's rule. In his own reign, Nick Mepa had two overriding concerns. One, keep the kingdom of Mitanni onside and friendly. Two, make sure this loyalty to Mitanni did not invite aggression from the other great power, the kingdom of Egypt. Nick Mepa had a difficult task to fulfil, but he seems to have done it quite well. Around regnal year 38 of Tutmos III, in the mid-15th century, Nick Mepa sent a diplomatic gift down to Egypt. This gift was an acknowledgement of Pharaoh Tutmose's achievements, and also a subtle request. Perhaps the Pharaoh would consider Alalak a friend. Not an ally, since Nick Mepa was still a vassal of the Mitanni, but at least a friend. Tutmose received the gift, and it was recorded on the walls of Karnak Temple. Quote, Tribute of the chief of Alalak in regnal year 38. Male and female servants, five. Asiatic copper, two ingots. Sweet-smelling wood, 65 pieces. Also, all sorts of aromatic plants from this land. End quote. Nick Mepa's gift was modest, but it conveyed the message. Alalak was not Egypt's enemy. 
Whatever issues existed between Tutmos and Mitanni, those were their own concern. Leave Nick Maypa and Alalak out of it. Tutmos, naturally, treated the gift of Alalak as a token of submission. When it came time to record in stone the territories and cities which had submitted to his rule, the city of Alalak was included in that list. Was this correct? Not really, but it did the job. Nick Maypa wanted Tutmos to think this way. The best way to ensure Alalak's security was to prevent an Egyptian attack before it occurred. Gifts and token ideas of submission helped ensure that diplomacy would replace warfare during times of crises. In this sense, I think we can see Nick Maypa as the direct successor of his father's political ambitions. King Idrimi had revealed a savvy talent for diplomacy and protecting his people. This is probably something he learned both from his father and from the experience of his father's fall back in Aleppo. Nick Maypa inherited a tradition of savvy politicking, and as a result, he and his father led Alalak well through times of great tension. Nick Maypa, it seems, was a practiced diplomat. Not only did he keep himself aloof from the clashes of Egypt and Mitanni, he also struck bilateral agreements with other towns in Syria. A tablet from Alalak records a treaty that Nick Maypa signed with the king of the city of Tunip. Tunip, south of Alalak, was another ally of Mitanni, but also one of the prime whipping posts for the pharaoh Tutmos III's imperial aggression. Nick Maypa, looking to protect his interests and those of Alalak, struck an agreement with the ruler of Tunip. This agreement would bring the two mutual gain and assured some healthy trade between the two cities. Quote, a tablet of the oath by the gods of Nick Maypa, king of the land of Alalak, and of Ir Teshub, king of Tunip. Nick Maypa and Ir Teshub made these terms with each other as follows. First, concerning the movements of people, be they merchants or mercenaries, neither city may be hostile. Indeed, you must not withhold barley, emmerwheat, or sesame oil. It is recorded by oath and a sealed tablet. You must help them. Second, if there is any who complains or conspires against me, you must seek them out, and you must kill these troops. Third, if anyone from within my land enters your land, you must not listen to him. You must seize him and inform me. And if he is resident within your land, you must seize him and hand him over to me. Fourth, if there is any plunder or spoils of war belonging to my land that is found in your land which someone is selling, you must seize it together with the one who sells it and hand these over to me. Fifth, if a fugitive, male or female slave, belonging to my land flees to your land, you must seize and return him. If someone seizes him or her and brings them to you, then you shall restrain them in your prison. Whenever his lord comes, you shall hand him over to him. End quote. You get the idea, right? Both powers were engaged in protecting each other's interests, whether these were interests of traders and merchants, or interests of runaway people like slaves. Basically, there were provisions for extradition in a variety of situations, and an assurance from both sides that if there was trouble, the troublemakers would be handed over to their homeland to be dealt with appropriately. The treaty is also signed by both as vassals of the King of Mitanni. Quote, the treaty is signed. The king of Mitanni is my lord. If you become hostile to the king of Mitanni, then I shall not break the oath with my lord, 
In that situation, the terms of this treaty would be rescinded. Sealed by Nick Mepa, King of Alalak, Servant of the Great God Teshub, and by Ir Teshub, King of Tunip, Servant of the Great God Teshub. End quote. Now, throughout his reign, Nick Mepa communicated extensively with foreign rulers. He sought trade agreements and treaties, put legal questions to his overlord, the King of Matani, and generally kept his state running on its course. But what about his father's legacy? More particularly, what about the matter of Aleppo? The original driving force of Idrimi, and then of Nick Mepa's kingship at Alalak, was the fact that their family had been exiled from Aleppo in a Mitanni-orchestrated coup. Idrimi might have bowed to political winds and foregone his vengeance, but would Nick Mepa do the same? Well, we don't have a definitive record in the same way we do for his treaties, or for the biography of his father. But it seems that at some point, Nick Mepa did manage to become the overlord of Aleppo once more. In the chaos of the Egyptian Mitanni battles, various city-states and territories in the area were either battered heavily by war, conquered, or forced to defect from one side to the other. Tunip, for instance, fell to the Egyptians in Tutmose's last decade on the throne. The city of Kadesh was sacked at least once, although not controlled by Egypt. The hill countries of Nia fell into Egyptian dominion, and the formidable city of Ugarit, not far southwest of Alalak, became an Egyptian garrison. The chaos of this period was Nick Mepar's golden opportunity, and under the guise of being a loyal vassal of Mitanni, Nick Mepar began to exert more and more influence in his family's hometown of Aleppo. After the city was battered by a raging battle between Mitanni and Egypt, Nick Mepar's influence grew steadily. Eventually, he was governing Aleppo on behalf of the Mitanni king. The king Saushatar of Mitanni was in dire need of a buffer state between himself and the Egyptian empire. Saushatar had faced some devastating attacks from Pharaoh Tutmose III. And so, attempting to quiet the situation, he gave the overlordship of Aleppo to Nick Mepa. In so doing, he returned Aleppo to the dynasty of Elim Elima and of Idrimi. Saushatar must have known what he was doing. But apparently by then, the Mitanni's trust in Nick Mepa and his dynasty was more than well-founded. So, Idrimi's revenge was fulfilled, and the city of Aleppo was returned to the control of this family. Maybe it wasn't the glorious conquest that Idrimi would have liked, but hey, a victory is a victory, right? Nick Mepa died as the king of Alalak and the overlord of Aleppo. He was master of the river Orontes, and a semi-independent vassal of the king of Mitanni. We don't know when Nick Mepa died, but when he did, the throne passed in turn to his son. This son was named Ilim Elima, just like the father of Idrimi. Ilim Elima II came to power as ruler of Alalak and Aleppo, and so the story came to its full circle. So ends the tale of Idrimi, of Nick Mepa, and of the cities of Aleppo and Alalak. These were tumultuous times in Bronze Age Syria, but I think we can agree that the protagonists of today's stories did a surprisingly good job of weathering the storm, and even of finding some light at the end of the tunnel. So the tale of Idrimi is for the most part a tale of survival and victory. 
Sadly, that is not always the case for stories coming out of Aleppo and Syria today. Casualties and bodies mount up regularly in this part of the world. Consider those who died in the violent eruptions between Mitanni and Egypt, bystanders caught between foreign imperial aggressions. Consider too those who die or bleed today for reasons that, 1,000 years from now, may look remarkably similar to those of the late Bronze Age. This region is a crossroads, a nexus of strategic locations and powers. People and wealth have moved through this particular corridor of geography for millennia. As they did so, they brought with them the conflict that tends to accompany human movement. So, our Syrian tales come to a conclusion. Hopefully we will be able to make some small contribution towards helping those vicious cycles end. We'll not fool ourselves. The cycle is one that humanity as a whole has performed for millennia, and will probably continue for much longer. But, when things come full circle, all that matters is our deeds, whether we helped or did not. I leave you with that, and with my gratitude for your donations to the podcast's efforts. Thank you. Actually, I don't want to end on such a down note. We have a small epilogue, which I think is quite amusing. Let's return to that statue in the British Museum, the statue of Idrimi, which contains his life story. The statue was carved possibly in the reign of Nick Maypar or in the reign of his son, Elim Elima II. At the end of the narrative inscription, there is Idrimi's promise of divine retribution against anyone who should vandalize the statue. There is also a sign-off by the scribe who composed the text itself and put it on the statue. The scribe was named Sharua, and as he finished off the text on Idrimi's statue, he could not resist including a little bit about himself. Quote, For this statue, Sharua is the official scribe. He has written, copied, and reviewed the text. And now, may the gods of heaven and earth keep Sharua, the scribe, who has written the text of his statue for his lord, in good health. May they protect him and be his guardian. May Shamash, Lord of the Upper and Nether Worlds, Lord of the Spirits, be his protector. So Sharua ends, and so we come to the end of our Syrian tales. Thank you for listening, thank you for donating. I hope you have enjoyed the story. Double thanks to everyone who contributed to these episodes. My thanks to Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece, to Scott Chesworth of The Ancient World, to Robin Pearson of The History of Byzantium, Doug Metzger of Literature and History, to Drew Varenkamp of Wonders of the World, and to Kevin Stroud of The History of English. With that, farewell. See you soon on the History of Egypt podcast. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details